G'day and welcome to the Bridget and Josh show. I'm Bridget. And I'm Josh. And this is the show where we talk about what we think young Catholics should care about. And this week, we're going to talk about the political compass. Yeah, I'm really keen. I think it's really important that we understand what we're talking about when we talk about left, right, up, down, all around. So I'm keen for it. Yeah, and I think a lot of the things that make up the political compass are things uh, that people like yourself and myself who are kind of a bit versed in politics can take for granted. Um, But having an understanding of some of these concepts really opens up politics and helps you to engage in it in a really, uh, or engage with it in a new way. Yeah, it's just a bit of political literacy, really, knowing what we're talking about, knowing what everybody else is saying. So to go through it, we're going to talk about the dimensions of politics and what we're actually saying when we're talking about these different areas of the political compass. Then we're going to chat through some examples of what that actually looks like in real life. And then we're going to link it up to our Catholic faith and what it kind of looks like when we talk about the political compass in Catholic world. Let's do it. Yeah. So what we talk about normally is when we talk about left and right and that kind of stuff, um, we're usually breaking it into kind of social areas um, and that's progressive versus conservative. Well, not versus, but, you know, progressive or conservative are the kind of different ends of the spectrum. Um, And that's stuff like, you know, refugees, women's rights, euthanasia, like all those kind of big topic social issues. Um, And then the next one is the economy um, and economic left and right. So that's kind of, collective stuff versus the free market, um, tax stuff, small businesses, um, and kind of how much control the government has over your money, over other people's money, um, and where it gets spent. And then the last one is usually kind of our leadership styles, um, and that's authoritarian versus libertarian. So um, how much individual power do we have versus state involvement in our lives? Um, And that's just kind of like Big government, small government, those are the key terms that people tend to use. So usually when you kind of look at it visually, left and right on it, you'll put it in like a square. Just Google it, basically. It's much easier (laughs) when you've got a visual, but to paint a word picture, left and right tends to be progressive and conservative and up and down is um, authoritarian and libertarian. And then your social stuff kind of fits in between those bits and pieces. Yeah, and I think the idea of the political compass you know, as opposed to the more classic understanding of the political spectrum as a linear reality. Uh, The political compass tries to capture the differences and nuances of people's positions within the context of social and economic policies and in those different leadership styles as well. You know, historically, the terms left and right were kind of seen as a simple linear question. It was assumed, you know, that if you like the idea of a controlled economy or social liberal policies, they were all at the left of the spectrum, whereas people who were fa- more in favor of free market economics and social conservatism, they were up the other end. And I think what the political compass does really well, at least in my own sort of opinion, is it shows that things really aren't that simple. 
you know, that rather than being on the same uh, pain, um, that these questions are actually set on different axes, uh, which is what the political compass does. And what that enables you to do is to is to really more easily identify the nuances that people have in their political positions that just because you you're you might be on the left economically it doesn't mean that you're going to be on the left socially and vice versa which i think is really important exactly and you're not necessarily bound by all of the um ideals and decisions that might be associated with particular areas so you might be someone who um is into kind of a more collective economy but has very different ideals from most people who would be on the left so you can kind of you know, fit into different areas and have different kind of bits and pieces that you collect over time, really, as your views and understandings of these different issues adapt. So what are some kind of examples of what this looks like in real life, Josh? Yeah, well, there's lots of different examples, you know, there's lots of different positions and ideologies, there's probably more than we can actually talk about today. So I might look at maybe some of the more well-known ones and some of the positions we might see in Australian politics today as well. So uh, we might start with communism. Uh, probably one of the more well-known uh, political philosophies. And so communism is an, is an approach to politics that seeks to establish what's called a communist society. And so that's a society where the means of production, which are the physical things that contribute to the economy, like factories, uh, workshops, materials, tools, all that sort of stuff, these things are owned by the community and not by individuals. Furthermore, in a communist society, there's no more social classes, and even things like money and, you know, the political state don't exist because they're not needed. And, you know, there's many different types uh, and approaches and schools of thought within communism. It's not just one thing. It's quite a diverse range of, uh, of positions. And so closely related to uh, communism is socialism. And again, this is a really broad category. Uh, some political philosophers have suggested that there's dozens and dozens of different definitions and types of socialism, you know, again, we can't talk about all of them, but I guess the thing that which, which is common to all of them um, is an approach to politics where the means of production are owned by society rather than individuals. And that sounds probably a bit similar to communism. I guess the big difference is, is that those extra things in communism, like the lack of social classes, uh, the non-existence of money in the state, etc., that's not necessarily a tenet of socialism. So, um, you know, some communists would say that communism is actually the end towards so, towards which socialism is directed. So um, they're kind of similar, but they're also different, right? And again, closely related to socialism uh, is the concept of social democracy, um, which technically probably falls within um, the bounds of socialism. And social democracy advocates economic and social policies that intervene in society for the promotion of social justice. Uh, and this is within uh, what we call a mixed economy uh, and a liberal democracy. Um, and so social democracy is often identified as a key group within the trade union and labor movement. And it probably would be the best, uh, would be the approach that is closest to uh, the Labor Party here in Australia. Just uh, before we move on, just a brief segue, I mentioned two concepts in there. So uh, that of a mixed economy. And a liberal democracy so a mixed economy um, when we talk about economics there's kind of three different types of economies in the world so you've got a completely controlled economy which is completely dictated by uh, the government and the government has complete control over uh, economic policy uh, and how the economy works on the other end you've got uh, what's called a free market uh, economy which is completely at the mercy of the market the government has no and doesn't intervene in how the economy operates 
what most economies fall into uh, in the world is what's called a mixed economy, which is a bit of both. And that, you know, some would depend on some are much more controlled than free market, some are pretty balanced and some are the other way. So um, that's what a mixed economy is. And in terms of a liberal democracy, uh, a liberal democracy is just a system of government that operates as a representative democracy and it's built on the principles of what we call classic liberalism. Um, and so the idea of separation of powers, the rule of law and constitutional government. Uh, you're probably hearing some things that you probably uh, ring a bell from the systems, uh, the system episode that we did uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and so examples of liberal democracies are Australia, the UK, US, Canada, New Zealand. They're all examples of liberal democracies and also examples of mixed economies as well. So um, Bridget, you've got a, a, an approach to politics that you want to touch on now as well. Yeah, yeah. Populism, I think, has definitely been rising in um, our politics and in politics overseas, too. Um, I think just as it feels like things are getting more divided and as people, I guess, like our politics went through like a stage of kind of coming closer and closer together and more center. And so that meant that um, people sometimes felt like, you know, if we're all in the center, then there's no nuance and then there's like there's nothing that separates us. And so people have tried to kind of rise above that to be like, I'm, I'm different from the past political leaders that you might've had. So in Australia, that's often been people like Pauline Hanson, um, where she's one of her big things is that like the current government isn't doing what they should be doing. Um, and instead like we need new voices and we need to break the mold. And um, often populism tends to be kind of that loud minority, but it does represent something that's in kind of the back of all of our heads that things should be done better than they are being done currently. Um, and obviously we can see that in people like Trump and um, in other places overseas, but like, and his kind of drain the swamp tactics where he's like, you know, we need something that's not what it is now. And um yeah, it's it's coming from a place that um, means that we need change, which is true, but we don't necessarily need our change to look like that, do you think? Yeah, and I guess one of the things that makes populism really kind of effective, uh, especially nowadays, is, you know, obviously the charge against populism is that it's just saying what people uh, want to hear or what people think people want to hear. Yet, I think that's what a lot of people think politicians do anyway. And so when you have these really charismatic figures emerge... Uh, into politics, they're kind of immune of immune to that criticism because there's sort of a, a sense that, well, all politicians probably say what they think we want to hear, but this person's saying actually what I do want to hear, so I'm going to vote for them. And that's where you get these really vocal minorities are making a whole lot of noise uh, around a lot of these, popu these populist figures. Um, you know, and the other thing which is really tricky with populism is that it doesn't, identify with one position on the political compass per se, but it actually can transcend uh, the compass. And so what you tend to find is that populist figures pop up everywhere. They can pop up uh, on the authoritarian left, on the libertarian left, in the uh, in the authoritarian right, or whatever it is, um, that they, they aren't bound by, uh, by fitting into one sort of category um, that they can actually be they can actually emerge anywhere on the spectrum, which makes, again, populism a real sort of threat to, you know, mainstream political parties because they can pop up and really tap into sentiment anywhere uh, that they think the people actually are politically. Yeah, because it's more of a style of um, 
like getting yourself elected instead of necessarily a set of policies. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. I think it sums up um, what populism is really nicely. So moving on, um, the next uh, sort of broad category of political positions that we can probably talk about is liberalism. And so like socialism, uh, liberalism is a pretty broad category or family of different political philosophies. At the heart of all liberal approaches to politics are three key principles. Liberty or freedom of the people, the consent of the governed, and equality before the law, what in Australia we call the rule of law. And it's these ideas which gave birth to the famous catch cry from the French Revolution of liberty, equality, and fraternity, right? And so um, within liberalism, there's lots of different schools of thought. So uh, I guess the one of the ones we've seen most prominently, uh, at least in the last 40 years, is neoliberalism. And so after World War II, most liberal democracies um, saw a pretty wide acceptance of uh, social democracy as the best form of government and the best approach to economics. But in the late 70s, that consensus kind of fractured. And so what you saw is the rise of people like Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, um, and they really came to power on the back of these neoliberal policies. Um, these policies included greater economic liberalization and deregulation, increased privatization of public assets, uh, free trade, reduction in government spending, and lower taxes. And all this was done to foster what's called trickle-down economics, which is the idea that if wealth is encouraged to grow at the upper end of society, that eventually that increased wealth will trickle down to the lower classes of society, um, which again is a very contentious topic. Um, but yeah, and so in the West, uh, neoliberalism has generally been accompanied by socially conservative positions, and this is especially the case in the in the seventies, the eighties, and even into the the early and late thousands before the GFC. Um, a good example of a of a neoliberal politician with a social conservative bent, what they call, um, you know, I guess here in Australia we call big L liberals, is John Howard. He would be a good example of that. Um, whereas on the flip side, classic or small L liberals, which are people who would advocate for neoliberal economic policies, but also a progressive or a libertarian sort of view of social policy, uh, they would be kind of represented by someone like a Malcolm Turnbull uh, or Tim Wilson, who's a member for Goldstein here in Melbourne, another good example of that. So, yeah. Next is nationalism. Yeah, so nationalism is the political belief that a person's primary identity is being a part of the nation. A person's first duty um, and their role as a citizen is at the service of the nation. Um, and it's an approach to politics that puts the interests of the nation first over and against those of outsiders. You often hear of nationalist parties in Europe talk about the motherland or the fatherland. Yeah, and so when you have when you look at nationalism, there's not a whole lot of emphasis on the place of the nation state in the wider global community or the global neighborhood. And uh, yeah, that's uh, a bit of an intro into some of those different political uh, positions that people might that you might find on the political compass. So once we've now that we've seen those kind of different examples and the flow of where you can kind of sit on the spectrum. Um, where have you been on the spectrum, on the, not on the spectrum, on the compass, Josh? Where have you sat previously versus where you sit now and what has that been like for you? Oh, look, it's, it's been a bit of a wild ride, if I'm being completely honest. Um, oh, it's been interesting, you know, like, um, you know, I think we've already spoken about the fact that I used to work in politics. I used to work for my local Liberal Member of Parliament back when I was living in Campbelltown. 
Um, you know, he was on the conservative side of politics, um, you know, and I would have saturate, uh, situated myself there as well. Um, so I probably would have been sort of centre-right-ish to the right of sort of centre-right. Um, you know, looking at what we've just spoken about, you know, I would probably would have called myself a John Howard liberal. You know, I was pro-neoliberal economic policies and was pretty socially conservative. Um, and I probably sat there for most of my time when I was working in, in politics. I, I'd probably shift, started to shift back to the center a little bit towards the end of my time, but not in a great deal. Um, but I guess now as time's sort of gone on a fair bit, um, you know, that was, you know, five, six years ago now. Um, I think my views have probably changed a fair bit. Um, I think I've come back to the center um socially it's kind of a bit tricky like i'm conservative on some things i'm kind of progressive on some other things um economically i'm probably a lot more center now than i used to be um so i don't know like i probably see myself as a bit of a centrist social democrat maybe i don't know something like that uh what about you i am a bit left of center i think and i i always have been but i think it's I'm an example of why it's really important to look at um, this compass as something that's really broad because to a lot of my like Catholic Christian friends, um, I'm like, oh, Bridget's a big lefty. Like that's um, kind of my stereotype in those circles. But um, when I'm talking to like my secular friends and all that, like I'm significantly more conservative than them. And they're like, oh, Bridget, like uh, look at this cute little Catholic girl. Like, you know, she's very conservative a bit prudish and i'm like i'm i am and i'm not <laughs> it just depends on who you ask and who i'm next to really like <laughs> i was like wait until you meet some of the people i know <laughs> like you would not believe um and it's so interesting i think as i've grown older um kind of really working that out on my own um i think like it's very easy to like your faith to absorb your political beliefs from the people around you. And especially if they are very involved, like my family was, we always like were quite, you know, loud and proud about what we did and, you know, our ways of thinking, like it's very easy to just absorb that without really fully understanding what your um, views are or really questioning what your views are. Um, so I think as I've questioned more, almost the more I've become like I've confirmed what I think, <laughs> but um, I think I've definitely made an effort to like step out of those like echo chambers where you just are hearing the same perspectives that you have, um, like that you already hold. So yeah, I think I'm definitely like a little bit left of center. I love doing the political compass thing every um, election. I wish I had an ACT one, our election's coming up and I'm like, oh, I want to see who's my best fit. Um, but I think that's really important because like it always asks questions that I um, like would never have thought of. And I'm like, for example, one of them was about um, the idea of like three-year-old preschool. So like going to preschool when you're three. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, I never even thought about that. Like, what does that mean? Like it really <laughs> threw me into thinking about like, what do I value and what is that going to look like on a political spectrum? Yeah, exactly. And I think what you're saying there just captures the importance of why asking questions and being open to dialogue is really, really important. Um, the danger if we don't do that, um, one is that, you know, if we're not open to others, we're actually not open to other people's experience. And if we're not open to other people's experiences, we actually can't be empathetic uh, to the lives of others. And the other reason I think conversation is really important, uh, especially with people we don't believe, uh, we don't uh, agree with, 
um, is that it stops us from falling into an echo chamber um, where we just get pat, we pat ourselves on the back and just assume that we're right all the time, which isn't going to help either. Yeah, it's so easy to as well because it makes you feel really good. <laughs> You're like, oh, wow, look, we all agree. World peace has been achieved because I'm only listening to my own voice. <laughs> yeah, and I think the challenge is, you know, that in the echo chamber, I'm always right. Whereas we kind of know that's not the case. None of us are ever always right, you know. So getting outside of that helps us to grow in empathy. It helps us to encounter different positions and different arguments. But most importantly, we actually encounter the people behind the arguments, behind the positions. We learn. We Sure, we learn theoretically about the positions. But most importantly, I think, is that we learn about the lives of other people. You know, and so, you know, looking at the preschool thing, um, you know, I'm not a mum or a parent, so I don't know what it's like. And so when I ask those questions, I can actually really get to know what's actually happening with you in your life. And you're learning that people's life experience is not the same as yours. Like on that issue, particularly, I was kind of like, what, three? That's so young to be putting people in schools and to like putting them, giving them all these rules and stuff. And then I was like, ah, oh, that's because when I was three, my parents were able to have the time to teach me how to read and, you know, play games with me that, you know, brought my imagination and taught me skills that I needed. And I had a lot of siblings, so I got social interaction. There are so many people who don't have that and who don't have that opportunity. And so being able to have three-year-old daycare would be a life-changing opportunity for them. Like, I think absorbing people's other perspectives and stuff really just like, it gives you a lot of insight into why things are happening and, you know, just that the world is much bigger and broader and more diverse than you can ever think it will be. Every time you think you've got it pinned down, it just, there's so much more. (laughs) I think um, when we're kind of doing that sort of research and stuff on political parties and, you know, especially as it comes up to elections and that kind of stuff, when you're looking at who you want to vote for, um, it can be really challenging as a Catholic to look at it all and being like, wow, none of this is kind of actually going to fit what I believe or what I think should be happening in the world. Um, and I think that that makes it easy for us to either disengage and be like, oh, the world is against us. Look at all these political parties that have no idea what they're doing. Um, but like, what do, what do you think we should do to stay engaged, but also um, recognize the nuance of where our Catholic beliefs can and can't align with what's happening in politics? Oh, look, and that's such an important question. And it's such an important thing to sit with because, I think if we look at the political landscape um, today, it's so real. That wrestle is so real between, okay, well, I have these beliefs as a, as a, as a young Catholic. Um, and so this party over here probably aligns with my beliefs in a certain way, but then it doesn't in another way and vice versa with the other major parties and the minor parties and whatever. And we can often have that thing where people think, oh, you know, this is the Catholic party. Um, you know, I see that in the States, you know, I've been following the US presidential election reasonably closely and the amount of vitriol that Catholics are aiming towards other Catholics, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is, um, based on whether they're going to vote for Trump or vote for Biden, it's really depressing, you know, and both sides sort of think that as a Catholic, you must vote for this person and that person, but it actually isn't really the case. And if we look at things here in Australia, you know, there's no Catholic party in Australia, some parties might align a little bit more closely with the church's values and beliefs and whatever, um, but there's no set sort of Catholic party. And what that means is, sure, on one hand, you know, there's a certain freedom about how, who you can vote for. Um, you're not forced to vote for this candidate or this party. Um, but at the same time, there's, I guess there's a responsibility for each of us to actually look into um, what the parties and those candidates sort of stand for. 
you know, and to really rest, wrestle with those questions and the different political posi- positions that they have and how that relates to what we believe as Catholics and what's sort of topical issues at election time and things like that, you know, and to really wrestle with that and just to try and form our consciousness as best we can, you know, and to engage in that way, which I think is really important. Um, you know, because if we think about, you know, this topic of the, of the political compass and we look at, um, you know, we look at the, the social and the economic and the leadership sort of stuff, you know the church has a lot to say about those topics, and um, and a lot to say about a lot to say about different questions that lie within those categories and topics as well. Um, but I think at the same time, when we try and you know come to identify ourselves, maybe in the political compass or whatever, it's almost like there's as if you know a fourth layer that sort of sits on top, you know, of the, you know who we are as a church. You know that the church doesn't fit neatly into one position on the political compass. You know, and I think. The key reason for that is being Catholic isn't about an ideology. Catholicism isn't a philosophy or a moral ethic or an, or an ideology. It's a relationship with a person. It's a relationship and an encounter with the person of Jesus and is an invitation into a relationship with Jesus and living out of that relationship of love um, that we can love others and in, in, in imitation of him in how we engage with the world. You know, we're not influenced necessarily by economics at the bottom line or social policies at the bottom line or leadership at the bottom line. We're influenced by love at the bottom line and loving like Jesus. And that's what is our foundation for our politics and how we engage with society. And I think that's really the heart of uh, our approach to politics and our, our approach to a lot of these questions. That was great. <laughs> that was really good. Um, yeah, I think that... Um it's so easy to look at political parties and I guess because we have that religious perspective to be like, okay, I have to pick something and live with it my whole life because that's what you're supposed to do with your religion, right? Like you enter into a relationship with Jesus and you push for it every day. Whereas our political parties are not a marriage and they're not a relationship. They're more like a bus, really. Like you get on it, you got to, you know, stick it out and get as close as you want but like, it's never going to quite take you right to your house. Like you've got to do some of the other work. Like political parties are not supposed to do everything. They do a lot, but they're not supposed to do everything. Um, And I think for me, when I weigh up who I'm voting for or like even which candidates I'm picking, I often am looking at like, what are the things that I think governments should do? Because I have to do the rest, you know, like, yeah. (laughs) I don't know where I was going with that, but um, yeah, like I have to look at what am I, where, where am I going to be making up the rest of those decisions that either I don't agree with or maybe parts of policies that like aren't addressed by different parties. Like what am I going to do um, to make up for the lack that they have? And um, I guess like it's also d- difficult because when we're talking church circles, when we use left and right, we're usually talking about like, social issues and like how the teaching and practices of the church respond to different issues. Um, but like, that's not always what is happening in the, in the political sphere and they're different areas of our lives and they should mix and mingle, but are not supposed to be one and the same or interchangeable. Yeah. And I think that's what you see, you know, when um, in church circles, we start applying these terms liberal and conservative in this way is that it, it, it falls short like a hundred percent of the time. And the reason for that is because it's, you know, it's a complete reduction of something that's much bigger and more beautiful and good and true 
than simple than simple labels that we might try and slap onto really complex realities. Um, you know, where the church stands on capital punishment and refugees, for example, is way to the left uh, to a lot of political parties. But then if you look at life issues, it's way to the right of most, most political parties. You know, and so what that shows is you can't, just these two examples, it shows that you can't just boil it down to, you know, ideological labels that you can slap on your head so you know which way you're going and where you belong. You know, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's why... Um we kind of um, making this show so that you can be encouraged to think more deeply about these things and um, to like take it on yourself to learn more and to see the nuance and um, to be really open to change and open to seeing these different perspectives and understanding that like they're not supposed to be the be all and end all of what you are and who, what you believe in, you know, it's supposed to be one part of how you engage in civil life and, all the other parts of how you engage in the world are much more broad and much more nuanced as well. Yeah, and I think um, it's really important to recognise that there isn't one spot on the compass that we're meant to be as Catholics. There's probably spots that you don't want to end up on. Um, But, you know, there's no sweet spot, you know. And so I guess what God calls us to do is to to really seek to form our consciences really well and see where we land. Yeah, exactly. And like, they're all just labels that are like kind of shorthand for how we think about how things should be done, but they're not supposed to be dismissive or sum up our whole selves. Like you're, you're being engaged as a Catholic citizen of the world and of a country doesn't stop at the ballot box and it doesn't stop on election day. It's about the everyday decisions that you're making in order to make the world a better place, really. And, you know, what that looks like in politics and what that looks like in church stuff and what that looks like outside of those bubbles is so important. And it's just as important, if not more, than the numbers that you put down or the boxes that you tick. Yeah, absolutely. Um so, yeah, go out there and do it. Uh, have a crack. Look up the political compass on Google. You'll find the website and, uh, yeah, give it a go. Yeah, tell us what you get. I'm keen to see. <laughs> well, that's it from us on the Bridget and Josh show. Next week, next week, next whenever, next episode, we'll be diving a bit more into what this can look like in our daily lives. Um, and we hope you're there to hear it. Can't wait. See you next time. Bye.